Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 6 12 to 17 and it's on the screen behind me as I read it for us. I have the right to do anything you say but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but not uh, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Morning, everybody. Hope you're having a great morning. We are on our journey through 1 Corinthians. We're in some interesting things this morning. How about I pray that God will help us, that God will speak to us, because as we go and find out a bit later, he's meeting with us. Uh, so, yeah, to hear him speak to us personally it's just a magic thing. So let's pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you that uh, you care about us. You care about where we're at in life. You understand us. And I thank you for these words in Scripture where it actually uh, meets us where we are when we're wrestling with so many things. And I do pray that you would speak into our hearts so we hear you clearly this morning. Amen. I grew up with the message that Christians are, apart from marriage, no sex, no drugs, no swearing. That was the environment I grew up in. In fact, it was implied from my parents, I think. I'm not sure how many times they had to tell me that. But certainly my mates at school used to tell me that all the time. Funny thing was, they never went to church. They're not Christians. But you Christians, if I ever looked like swearing, they would pull me up. I went to a school that did a bit of drugs. And that, they knew that's not what Ross does when it comes to sex. <laughs> You're a Christian. You don't do that. Which raises the question... What does God care about sex? What does God care about my sex? And if he does care, why does he care about sex so much? So when you come in this morning, you might have got something in your handout that said, hey, we're going to be talking about some stuff over the next three weeks uh, that are going to be some stuff we should be thinking about, good for us to be thinking about, but we tried to give you the heads up that it was coming because when we talk about is God interested in sex, actually we're in a part of the Bible where the next 48 verses are about sex. And we're going to hit it for three talks. The first one, yeah, it's about sex. Is God interested in sex? The second one, uh, sex and marriage. And the third one, sex and singleness. It's 48 verses in Scripture. Now, if you're thinking, hang on a minute, uh, next week I'm going to come along and hear this talk. Next week's Mother's Day. We want you to bring your mum to church, and that's going to be a bit awkward. So, next week, we're having a little break from 1 Corinthians. Bring your mum. 
We're going to have something special for Mother's Day next week. Make the most of that opportunity. And we're going to pick it up for the following two weeks after that. But I want to preface this uh, little three-week block is um, just a few things. If I feel like, if it looks like I'm using my mo- notes more than normal, it's not because I don't know my notes. It's actually because I don't want eye contact with you. This is the sort of conversation I want to have in a car where everybody's looking out the window. There also might be moments where if you're younger than me, it feels like your dad giving you a sex talk. I know, that's awkward too. But think of all those people who are older than me, feeling like their son is giving them a sex talk. That is even more awkward. I know, I know. I know. But I'm always thankful that God speaks into our world, into our life and things that are concerning us. But of course God speaks into it. The bigger question is, are we going to listen? We're going to listen to what God says about issues like sex. Particularly, uh, we do live in a world where we hear it all the time what the world thinks about sex. All the time, every day, from every media. We hear it over and over again. What does God think about it? That's why it's good for us to spend some time. Why is God interested in sex? Why is God interested in the way I do sex? Is the question we're looking at this morning. So, there's two parts to this passage. The first one, Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church. They're new Christians. They're working out, how do I live for Jesus? Because I live in a world, a different world. And the two worlds have come together. And the first part is he's picking up the faults in their thinking. He's gonna, the first part is picking up the faults, faults and then he's going to point to God's goodness in his plan for us. So the first bit, we had read for us, but it punches out all these phrases. Uh, little bits, I'm going to point out five, that he's just going, he, he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, which we could spend a lot of time, but he's just punching it out, so, so, do, so are we. Their attitude, this is their attitude in inverted commas. I have the right to do anything. And in a sense, this is a message that Paul's been preaching. He is speaking to a church like us. This is not a message that he's preaching out on a street corner. This is family talk in the family to believers. So they've heard him preach, heard him preach about the freedom we have in Jesus. So they conclude, I have the freedom to do anything, you say. But he says, but not everything is beneficial particularly when it comes to sex stuff. It's not all beneficial. He repeats it again because it must be a a strong thing that they believe. I have the freedom to do anything. But he says in a different argument, but I will not be mastered by anything. So when you use your freedom to do stuff, is it my freedom that I choose to do it or is it because I'm doing it because I'm enslaved by it, I'm controlled by it, particularly when it talks about uh, sexuality stuff. Who's mastering? Am I choosing to do that? Or am I just a slave being mastered by it? Paul says, you can can say you've got the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything because that's what it can do. The third one, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for food. This is kind of a saying that, well, God made me how I am. God gave me a stomach. God gave me food. Therefore, I can just my food is meant for eating. I eat what I want, when I want, whatever I want. Like, this is all good. This is the way God made me. He's using this in the context of sexual stuff. So like God gave me genitals, so he made them to have sex with. So that's what I'm going to do. It's 
God made me how I am, so that's what I'm going to do. But he's like, food for stomach, stomach for food. But his answer to that is, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Again, it's like, just because you've got a stomach doesn't mean you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Just because you've got genitals doesn't mean you just go out and have sex whenever you want. God is actually concerned. He uses this bit. The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. God's actually interested in what you do. He cares about what you do physically with your body. Because the second part of that saying, it's actually two kind of sayings, and God will destroy them both. Sorry. God will destroy them both. So the, the Corinthians, trying to work out how does this God work with the spiritual and physical, uh, think that God's only concerned with the spiritual side of me, my soul and my heart. He doesn't care about my body because it's going to be burnt anyway. Yeah? Final day, God's going to come in judgment. He's going to burn and destroy everything and we'll be made new in heaven with our spiritual bodies. But Paul's going to correct that later on in chapter 15 which we'll get right at the end of the series but for now he's going no no hang on by his power he raised the lord from the dead and he will raise us also there's something about the resurrection that says no your bodies will be new but there, there will be a physical body so god actually cares about your body it's not just it's going anyway don't care no no god does care god does care the fifth one uh, I'm just picking up from verse 18 because it's another idea that they hold to. That all other sins a person commits outside, are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now here's this, again, spiritualizing stuff. That if God only cares about my, my heart, my spirit, what's going on, on the inside, he doesn't really care about the outside. And Paul's saying this is in the context of uh, sexual immorality um he's going actually all other sins they do you just do sins you, you do actions but there's something that's going on with sin that actually does engage your mind does engage your heart in a very different way to other sins that's explaining uh that sort of misunderstanding you actually sin against your own body is what he's saying so it's not always sin against god so when we sin against god we're actually uh, offending God, we're harming God when we sin against Him. He's saying, you're actually sinning against your own body. You're actually harming yourself. You're harming your own body when you get involved in this sort of stuff. Now, I think there's a lot of research around this stuff, current day research, that talks about how uh, a lot of um, psychological or mental health problems through, through trauma, through addictions, are all, uh, many of it, is associated with sexual history, sexual past, not being able to control or, or being abused or being the abuser. We affect ourselves, our own bodies, through sexual sins, different to other sins. Here's five reasons, he says, that you think that you try and justify yourself, but I actually, I'm pulling it up before you, going there's a problem with all your thinking. Now, we might say, well, we actually don't think like that, so that doesn't really affect me. But actually, that voice that's in the Corinthians' ear, you know, do this. You're free. You have the right to do anything you want. It's your body. God made you. Ha we have the same voices. You know, they come along with things like this. What's the harm? It's my body. It's my choice. Well, God made me the way I am. He made me for sex. That's his 
He made me like I am. Let it roll. I'm not hurting anyone. They're actually the same arguments as them, but using different words. God doesn't care about my body. He made me the way I am. No, no, he does care about what you do with your body. What's the harm? No, no, you have freedom, but use your freedom because you will be mastered by things. Not all things are beneficial. So there's this logic that even speaks into today because we get this voice when we're tempted, this voice going, what's the problem here? It's partly because we live in a society that this is the norm. This is the norm when thinking about sexual things. And even for Corinth, where this was a real letter written to a real church in a city called Corinth, first century, uh, it was a Greek city. Then the Romans come in, conquer. It's now a Roman city, so they got the best and worst of both of those cultures. But when you went into Corinth, this is the world that they were in. Uh, this is at the top of the hill, outside of Corinth is this massive hill and this is the temple of Aphrodite. It's been destroyed through, a lot of Corinth's been destroyed through earthquakes. But this is the image of uh, the temple of what it looked like. You can see the hill sort of looks down, down the bottom of that is the city of Corinth. Aphrodite is the god of uh, sex, you might say, but the god of prosperity and fertility. So what you'd have to do, if you're a Corinthian, you would climb the mountain and you would pay to have sex with the prostitute because that made the God happy. Now, it's not like, oh, that sounds a bit weird, my wife wouldn't approve. No, no, if you're a Corinthian, this was normal practice, that you would participate in these sexual acts. So prostitution was a big part of their religion. Now, a very religious city, not Christian city, religious city, lots of temples. So this was one of the key temples for them. But not only for religion, they also had lots of banquets. They liked hospitality. They liked big noting themselves. So invite all the big wigs all around to your house. You'd put on a big dinner, a big banquet with entertainment. Then when the food was finished, you'd send your wives home and out come the prostitutes. This artwork, this is from Pompeii. You know, Pompeii was a city that got covered with volcanic ash. And this was one of the rooms the men would go to after dinner and the artwork portrays all the prostitutes coming in after dinner. It was the exact same time Paul's writing the letter to the Corinthians. It was part of the Roman culture that this is what you did. So for them, it was just the norm. It's not just if you're one of those people. No, no, this is, if you're a Corinthian, this is what you did. Now for us sitting here, it's like, well, I don't go to a prostitute. I don't go to a temple prostitute. And we don't have these banquets after, uh, the, the banquets the way they do. Paul doesn't let us off that easy. It'd be nice if that was let off that easy, but Paul doesn't let us off that easy. He goes on to give us a bit more context. This is a few verses from the chapters before and after of what was going on inside the church. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there, are sexually, that there is sexual immorality among you, and in this case, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. This is in the church. And because if you were here when we preached on that passage, they didn't see a problem with it because that was part of culture. There's sexual immorality in the church. He goes on in chapter 7, uh, talking about it's more than just one issue. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Now, this is a good verse to help us work out what is he talking about sexual immorality? Because he's holding up two types of sex, the sexual immorality 
and this, the, the way he's recommending you know, a man with his own wife and a wife with her own husband, that's God's plan. That's honouring to God, as we'll find out later. But this sexual immorality, what is that talking about? How, where's, the, where's the line in the sand that we cross into that sexual immorality? It's actually a Greek word, pornea. It's the word we get porn from, from that Greek. But it's actually not just watching a screen. It's, it's way bigger than that. Anything that's outside of God's plan, man and woman in marriage, falls into the pornea area. That's a big area. It's more than porn. It's anything you do sexually. It's, it's the, with a prostitute, sex before marriage. It's uh, anything to do with, you know, where's the boundary? What, how do you define sex? Well, if it involves the genitals, it's usually sexual. It's um, what, what about watching porn? Well, actually, if you're using your body parts, if you're using your mind, even Jesus says, even your eyes can cause you to stumble that way in a sexual way, our eyes. So it's everything else, everything else that's outside God's plan. God's plan, man and woman in marriage. More on that in the coming weeks. But that's helpful for us to work out in this passage because it's not just sex with the prostitutes, it's actually sexual immorality, all that pornia baggage. But he also goes on, why why is this a problem? I've rocked up to church this morning. Why is this such a big deal that we need to talk about it? Well, he describes our sexual desire like this. Chapter 7, verse 9. He's talking about people in their church, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We're going to unpack that verse next time. But to say that we all have a particular sexual desire that burns with passion inside of us. This is the only time the Bible uses this phrase, burn with passion, in regards to our desires. We might desire other things. We might desire lots of money. might desire power. But we can sort of, we can regulate that sort of stuff. We have control, make choices. But when it comes to sexual stuff, for many of us, the passion is so strong. How do you hold it back? How do you restrain it? It becomes like it's trying to master you, not you mastering it. And he goes on to say in verse 36, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably towards the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, even Paul is saying this sexual desire inside of us can be so strong we can't control it. It is so strong. So if you think God has made you with this over-the-top sex drive, you know, you're God's gift to women, that's kind of normal. Most blokes feel that way. And I think for women too, there there, there can be this desire and passion that is so strong that we have trouble controlling it. This is why there's an issue. This is why we need to talk about it. This is what's going on. So Paul's saying, don't just roll with it. All that thinking... It's faulty, just thinking you can do whatever you want. But there is a better way. There is a better way, and that is trusting God's good plan. I should say this is a great reminder that this is a message for everyone. I heard a story about a, a story. I think it's made up. But it's a good reminder of a young pastor struggling with his sexual desires. Saw an old pastor. He's an old dog. He's been around for years. Young men ask him, look, how long will it take? What, how, what age will I be before these sexual desires go away from me? And the old man says, I wouldn't trust myself till I was dead three days in the grave. 
the sexual desires of Strauss song, even for the old man. This stuff, what Paul's talking about, doesn't matter if you're old, doesn't matter if you're young, doesn't matter if you're married or single, we're all the same. Doesn't matter if you're a pastor, doesn't matter if you're a new Christian, we're all the same. We all need to hear this stuff. Paul's put his finger on something here that's going, hey, this is, this is how it is. And I think he's right. But he says, you're thinking to justify going down that path is wrong. But here's a better plan. This is God's goodness, the goodness of God's plan. And he goes on. And when he goes on in these verses from verse 15 onwards, he uses a lot of temple language. If you don't get it when I read it, don't be too worried. We'll pull apart it in a moment. But he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting a passage from Genesis and a quote Jesus used a lot. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? There is uh, this temple language going on and there's this, it's a helpful illustration for us to understand this positive message of God. So in a temple, three things go on. It's where we meet with God. So God is not going to just meet anywhere, anytime. There's specific places in time and history that God dwells. He lives with people. So that's the temple where we meet with God. The temple is holy and sacred special place you know that that everywhere you look it shows god's goodness there's nothing bad in the temple it's all points to god's awesome power it's awesome glory it's also exclusive this is god's domain god reigns it's clear to see to everyone this is where god shows his authority and power in the temple so in the bible there are a number of little pictures of this temple first one the garden of adam and eve and there's lots of parallels here you won't often think of that as a temple but it's where they met with god god was in the garden with adam and eve it was holy and sacred there was nothing bad in the garden of eden it's not till they get out god says now you're gonna have to work the land so i did everything for you in there now you're gonna have to uh contend with the thistles and thorns and the weeds because in the garden before they sinned it was holy and sacred and this was God's domain. God was exclusive. It was very clear. God reigned. God was the creator, controller, sustainer of the Garden of Eden. It blew up because they didn't see God as exclusive. They wanted the fruit so they could know the difference between good and evil. They could make themselves God. God says, that's not going to work. You're out of the temple. That was the end of Eden. Then in Israel, in Jerusalem, they, God said, build me a temple. I want to dwell with you again. And this is where people would go to Jerusalem, go to the temple and meet with God inside the temple. If you read through the Old Testament, there's lots of instructions of the inside of the temple. What made it holy and sacred? It is not grab a lampstand and whack it in the temple. No, no, I want a special lampstand. I want these dimensions. I want it made of gold. So inside was all this gold, was all uh, cedar wood. It was, it was very... When you walked inside, the way it's described, as in it shone the glory of God, the radiance of God. You knew how awesome God was in, because it was holy and sacred, so different from the world, special to God. 
but it's also exclusive. You went into the temple, you knew God was in charge. There was a holy of holies room behind a temple. And if you messed around with that, because it was only the priests, the priests, after having gone through all the purification laws, could enter the temple. Not anybody, because you're in the presence of God. It's exclusive. If you weren't right before God, God would strike you down, and it happened in the temple. The problem with that was Israel took on other gods. God wasn't exclusive, and the temple went to ruins. God left. But there's this third image of the temple. I don't know what heaven's going to look like. This is the best picture I've got, because it's, the Bible talks about a wedding banquet. People there, lots of food, lots of drink, and we're in the presence of God himself in Jesus. We'll be there. And again, this is where we meet with God, in heaven, if it looks in that, or different. It's, it's the temple. We're meeting with God face to face. He's going to be living with us, or we're going to be living with him. It's holy and sacred. Nothing bad is in heaven. No more hurts, no more pains, no more tears. All those things that make this world hard. He says, that's going to be dealt with. It's going to be gone. It's going to be all full of joy. Everything in heaven is going to point to the glory of God. And it's also the place where it's exclusive. You will know in heaven that Jesus reigns. You'll know that he is truly God. Nothing is even going to come close. His glory will be that great. It's exclusive. Nothing's going to end that picture. That's Jesus' final word, is the heaven thing. Now, if you were in a time machine and able to go to any of these places, would you like to I would like to check out what was Eden like? A place where they walked with God, a place where it was holy and sacred. It was a perfect garden. I like gardens. It was a perfect garden. That it was so everything pointed to the glory of God. And you could not miss the point. God's in charge. Or in the temple to actually walk in the front door. To actually see the gold, see the radiance, the shining, the bright lights, the smell of the incense. Everything there pointed to how God is so good and glorious. And God was there to see God saying, this is my house, this is my domain and you can't miss it. Or to get in a time machine and go to heaven to go see where I can meet with God himself, with Jesus, where it's holy and sacred, nothing bad, nothing ordinary in heaven. It's all special. And Jesus reigns. It's exclusive. How good would it be to see that right now? But Paul says there's something going on. It's not just the temple, those places. There's something special that happened since Jesus went to the cross the birth of the church. He said this a couple of chapters ago. It's worth pulling up again. So Paul writing to the church, this is still in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 from verse 16. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Can you imagine that? I'm not sure what your view of church is, but when we come together, God meets with us. God is with us. In the same way he was at the temple, it says God's spirit is here. There's something holy and sacred about what goes on here, that everything we do points to Jesus as Lord. All our prayers, all our singing, all our teaching, we're all pointing, Jesus is Lord. And it's exclusive. Jesus is Lord. We want that message loud and clear all here. Because that's who we are as the temple. It's very clear. But what if 
the temple wasn't just a place you go to, whether it's Eden, whether it's in Jerusalem, whether it's in heaven, or even what we do here on a Sunday. What if God wants to get closer to you? Closer to you as an individual, not just this place. Because this is what Paul is saying when he goes into these verses. What we read before, chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? We're united with God in Jesus. We are one with him. He's here with us. Verse 17, but whoever unites, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. It's not talking about us as a church anymore. It's in us. We are united with Jesus is with us. God's spirit dwells within each of us. And then he goes on uh, to say, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Do you know that? It's like, man, that temple, Eden was special. The temple was special. Heaven's going to be special. God's moved into your life each of us, this is not general spray, this is your life, God's moved into your heart, into your soul. Now, concerns, man, when I'm thinking, well, I know the, the sacredness, the holiness of the temples, I don't have that on the inside. But actually, if you're here last week, the verse just before the verses we got to this week was Jesus saying, or Paul saying, that through what Jesus did on the cross, through Jesus taking your sin, washing you clean, he used the words, through Jesus, you are washed. You are sanctified, as in you're not like the world anymore. You are made holy and you are justified. So now when God sees in you, if you believe in Jesus, when God sees in you, it's like walking into the temple with all the gold and all the, the cedar. And it's like, wow, this is awesome. It's perfection. That's what God sees in us because Jesus has washed us clean and left us with this perfection so pure that God's Spirit says, now I can move in. God's Spirit can live in us, dwell in us. We are now the temple. We don't need a temple because God's in us because of that. That's like, do you realise how precious you are to God that he would do that? Do you realise how valuable you are that God wants such a relationship with you. He wants to move into your life, to live with you, to show his radiance, to show that he is truly king. He's exclusive in your life as Lord and Saviour. That happens through our souls. That, that's his desire for us, to have that intimacy in the relationship. That's the picture of the temple. Now, how does this work with the way they're living? Because he says, what are you doing uniting yourself with a prostitute? Whether it's in the uh, temple of Aphrodite or not, what are you doing uniting with something else? Because you're united with God through the spirit living in you. And now you're uniting sexually with uh, another woman in this case. And, and don't you know, uh, he says, the two will become one flesh. And it's a saying when people get we're married. You're not two individuals anymore. You're getting married. Now you're one together. And he's not just talking about the marriage ceremony or the ring. He's talking about sexually when two, two people get together, there is a chemical reaction. This is a scientific thing. A chemical reaction, they say, um, a chemical that helps us attach. And it's an attachment. That we love that person. We bind ourselves to that person. He says, hang on, you've 
bound yourself to the Spirit, thanks to Jesus, but now you're binding yourself with the prostitute. You have the Spirit in you, you're taking the Spirit into that room. It's not, that's not going to work. Your intimacy with God is not going to be intimate if you're, you're tearing yourself away to do these other things. It doesn't work. He says there's a better plan. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Because other sins are not that hard to move on from. You know, God says, don't murder. I can do that. I don't have to murder. Don't uh, abuse people. Yep, okay, process that. I can do that. Move on. But when it comes to sexual stuff, so alluring, so controlling. He says, don't flirt with it. It wants to flirt with you. We've all experienced it. It wants to flirt with you and it'll draw you in. No, flee from it. That's the one you've got to run from because it will master you. It will control you because you're not just you and your body anymore. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Sacred, special, exclusive to God. Jesus alludes to this sort of true life when Jesus was talking about uh, when we have this devotion to God, when God is, when Jesus is exclusive for us, we will find three things when we trust in Jesus. He says, you will find joy, you will, you will find life to the full, and you will find peace. You'll find these things in trusting Jesus. What are you going to find in the 15 minutes you go the other way for sexual immorality? 20 minutes. I don't know how long. Whatever your situation is. But what it doesn't compare. You find life, find joy, find peace in Jesus. The other stuff doesn't live up. So God is not putting these boundaries around us because he's anti-fun. We'll get into this in the next couple of talks. But because that he cares for us too much just to let ourselves go on this train wreck that we're on. He wants us to live lives that honour him to find this life, this joy, this peace. And this is where just the last few verses pull it all together. It says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. And remember, he's talking to a church, he's talking to believers. He's saying, do you know who you are? Do you understand what being a child of God really means? That's the whole thing. If you're not, if you're, you're bought at a price, you're on the outside. You're outside the family. Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost, to bring them into the family. He paid the price and he did that for us too. Jesus come into your life to seek you out. He paid the price. You're no longer an outsider, but now it's welcome in. It's no longer living a life of shame and embarrassment, but no, Jesus is introducing you to the rest of the family. This is my child. This is a child of God as we walk into the room we're one of the family now and that's significant now this is good news this is very good news just in these few verses because particularly if we've talked about stuff this morning if I've touched a nerve and sometimes we think of ourselves well I know this area I'm just a failure struggled with it for years Still going on now. I know there's an element of shame that can be involved if, man, if people only knew. That that can be hard. What if God knows? There's a sense of being defeated in this area. Just can't control it. 
it's just stop. It just keeps going. I just want you to know that Jesus did come for you. That Je- you haven't done anything that Jesus hasn't seen before, I think. I think Jesus has seen it all. But I'm so encouraged the way Jesus come into our world, a broken world, and he sought out people, even with sexual sin. There's a story about uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. So Jesus, with his disciples, Jesus is a Jew, Jesus is a teacher, respected, honoured. Jews don't mess with Samaritans. Jesus says, let's go to this, this city, this town. Hangs out at the well. He's hanging out at the well by himself, waiting for this one particular woman to come. This woman comes and he goes, look, I know your story. You've been married before. In fact, you've been married five times before and now you're living with a guy that uh, you're not married to. Now, breaks all the protocol. A Jew shouldn't even be there. A teacher definitely shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan, particularly with a lifestyle like that. But Jesus goes there and he knows what the woman's after. She's, she's picking up water out of the well, but he says, I know you're thirsty. This is not going to quench your thirst. He can see she's thirsty for relationship, acceptance. She's doing it through her sexuality with different men attaching herself to. But one man after another, she seems to, I can't quench this thirst. And Jesus says to her, but I will give you living water. The thirsty quenching will never be resolved, but I'll give you uh, living water that will give you true life. This is not just to anyone. This is to somebody who's really wrestled with their sexuality and failing. But Jesus gives her life. He went out of his way to seek her out, to give her that message. That's an encouragement to us, that we can come to Jesus, that he will give us living water, that we don't have to thirst again. And he's just as concerned for you as he is for her, that he loved you enough to pay the price, to die for you. He come out and sought you out to bring you back. You're not your own. And that's a good thing. I take joy in that because when I'm out of the family, when I'm far from God, I know I make bad choices when I think I'm my own boss. He says, you're not your own. You're bought at a price. You're in the family now. God's here to look after you. God's here to guide you, not condemn you. And you belong to God. You're in the family And he's so pleased with you that he calls you a temple that he wants to dwell in you with his spirit. I mean, that's encouraging. That's the wow factor. No matter who we are or what we've done in the past, God deals with that. And he doesn't turn us away. In fact, he comes to us and comes into our lives. But let's not do what we've done in the past. Let's start looking to the future. Because there is a therefore. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Because for many of us, forgiveness is great, that's dealing with our past, but we're going to have to make some better choices into the future. This is very practical, very real. Things like what we watch, what we think about, what we're tempted to use on our phones or our apps or on websites, what we do with our boyfriends and girlfriends. We've got some real practical decisions to make. Are we honouring God with our bodies? Or are we going down the sexual immorality line? Are we honouring God with our bodies? Because when we do that, Jesus is saying, this is what it's going to look like. You will find life to the full, water that quenches, joy, life, peace. Now, this is not as easy as just, yep, new conviction, done, let's walk out of here. We're going to be hitting this over a few weeks. There's some time to process this and think about it. 
And there might be some times where we're hoping to uh, send out some resources that you might want to link to, um, to have more, some help in this area for some of us. There's also might be an occasion where we might need to talk to somebody about this because this stuff's really hard to deal with it ourselves. And happy to just put that out there. You're not alone. Lots of people struggle with this stuff. So we're doing this as a church family together because Paul's writing it to a church family and this is God's word for us today. So let me encourage you to take this stuff seriously. Next week's Mother's Day, we've got two more weeks. It's going to be, uh, yeah, a lot more fun as well. How about I pray for us? Dear Father God, just thank you for your love, your grace and your compassion on us. Lord, you know our brokenness whether it's sexuality, whether it's other things, there's so many things that we do that just contradict our life of honouring you. There's so many things we do that aren't holy, that we're embarrassed about, even shameful of. But Lord, I thank you for Jesus and the significance of the cross. I thank you through the cross, you dealt with all our sin, that you've washed us clean, you sanctified us, made us holy and you've justified us and you're so pleased with what Jesus did on the cross that you want to live in my heart so Lord thank you for the privilege that that is and I pray that over these coming weeks you'll help that to sink in on us that you want the best for us you've got the best plan help us to trust in you help us not to listen to those voices trying to justify our desires but help us run to you and not run to sin We pray this and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.